0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the University of Michigan Retirees Association podcast. Our podcast offers a fresh way to stay connected with our Retirees Association and the greater University of Michigan community through our many programs delivered by prominent faculty and inspirational community leaders and by our vibrant interest groups. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you enjoy the following episode.
1: It's a wonderful crowd, and it's very, very colorful out here. Yeah, (laughs) thank you, Carol. Thank you, you, Carol. I'm very honored. An honor to introduce our afternoon speaker, Dr. Mark Clegg. A little closer, okay. This seems really close. Okay. Uh, Dr. Mark Clegg is Associate Dean for Collaborations and Partnerships and Professor of Music and Director of the UM Gershwin Initiative in the School of Music. He researches all forms of music making in the United States. His research questions focus on how music forges and shapes social relationships and the art of sound as simultaneously a transcendent emotional expression and an everyday tool for living. Professor Clegg holds affiliate appointments in American culture, African and Afro-American studies, nonprofit management, and entrepreneurship. Before joining Michigan's faculty, Professor Clegg served as executive editor for Music of the United States in America, a series of scholarly editions of American music published by AR Editions for the American Musicological Society. He also held editorial positions for the Center for Black Music Research in Chicago, where he helped complete the International Dictionary of Black Composers under the direction of Dr. Samuel Floyd. Before joining the Michigan faculty, Professor Clay was principal bassoonist with the Chicago Civic and Rockford Symphonies and played periodically with the Grant Park and Chicago Symphony Orchestra. His undergraduate degrees are from the University of Michigan and his graduate degrees are from the University of Chicago. In addition to today's program, approximately and maybe more than 44 UMRA members will be joining Professor Clegg at Sunday's concert who could ask for anything more, which will feature Gershwin music. And then there are some other events which Dr. Clay will also inform us about. So please help me welcome Dr. Clay. <laughs> to online.
0: Thanks so much. It's <laughs> wonderful to be here. I'm surprised about how big the audience is. This is, this is amazing. I didn't know I was going to have a crowd and a crowd online as well. Um, I'm a, a long-time Ann Arboric. I was actually born in uh, the old St. Joe Hospital, which which is now the nursing school. So, my uh, grandfather had a, a, a grocery store on Packard, which is now the Argus Farm stop, if you've been over there. And so, uh, my dad was a neurologist in town, a member of the, the medical school faculty. I was going to follow in his footsteps. and. Uh, Came and did my undergrad and, and pre-med and chemistry, and then I just started doing more and more music and art, and somehow I ended up as a you know, being have the, the incredible honor of really being able to come back to the university as a faculty member, even though my mom lives about two miles from where we're standing right now, and my sister's over in Canton, so um, you know it's it's really amazing actually to be in my hometown at one of the you know great universities of the world. And uh, unfortunately, my children did not want to stay in town. They are all other places—Chicago, New York, and Indianapolis. But I did get to go to the championship game last Saturday and take my daughter. So <laughs> that was pretty awesome. And they, I still have the same—you know—section sixteen, row seventy-two, seat seven, which my my father bought that uh, season ticket in 1970. So we have been we have been going and sitting in that same seat for 50 some years. So. <laughs> It's definitely really a, a thrill, but I definitely bleed maize and blue and so it's a huge honor for me. I actually just added yet another administrative role to my portfolio, um, at, which is uh, executive, Interim Executive Director of the Arts Initiative for the University. So, am um, doing a lot of that. I, I meet with President Ono tomorrow at 3 o'clock, so wish me luck, um, <laughs> but advocating for the arts really across the entire University of Michigan ecosystem. So. It's really an incredible privilege to be at this place where just so much can happen. I mean, Michigan is such a place of possibility as all you, you know firsthand. And uh, really, the, the, you know, I think the arts are an exciting place to be because we have this incredible quality of these you know, top-notch schools, uh, you know, Taubman stamps, SMTD, um, UMS, which is just brings in world-class, you know, the Berlin Phil is practically a hometown orchestra here, which is just you know, mind-boggling to me and my students. And then to have the art museum and the incredible things that are happening there. So it's 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 really a privilege to to be, you know, in my hometown and also with the greatest university on the planet. So one of the really exciting things we have is the, the Gershwin Initiative. And I'll tell you more and more about that as we go. But I, I thought I would give you the origin story. It's it's sort of part of the, the magic of Michigan as our alumni network, and hopefully Roger's got me set up with this machine here. Mm-hmm. now it's doing something okay here we go so that gentleman there is Todd Gershwin. Todd tells me all the time he actually works on Broadway and people like get his business card and they're like wow your name is the same as the composer (laughs) and so he is the great-nephew of George and Ira Gershwin and he's a graduate of the University of Michigan so he graduated from the kinesiology program in sports management went on to a uh, career at St. John's he was actually athletic director at St. John's briefly um, but then he became, joined the family business and became a Broadway producer. He's produced the Janis Joplin musical. He's currently representing the Peanuts Christmas. So he tours all around the world, he comes back. We have, you know, the, the, the best musical theater program in the, in the nation is at the University of Michigan. So that's another thing I would highly recommend is any musical theater show, you're gonna see future Broadway stars, if not current Broadway stars. Like our, our students take time off from their studies because they have to be on Broadway for a year or two. Um, it's the most selective uh, program on campus. We have 1,600 students apply for 24 spots. So it's way harder to get into our musical theater program than it is to get into the law school. It's, it's like a 2% acceptance rate. Um, and they're just amazing talents. Uh, they, they do a senior showcase in May, which is also just incredible. So Todd comes back and works with, with our students as well. But he, he basically made a cold, cold call to the university in 2008 when Christopher Kendall was dean. It was actually a cold email, but, but you know, I don't know if we have that phrase, so I just got a cold call, and he basically said, "Hey, my name's Todd Gershwin, just wondering if you'd be interested in working on my uncle's work." And we were like, mm, okay, yep." Yeah. <laughs> and it took about 10 seconds for me to say yes to that opportunity, and it, and it was really because you know, Michigan is a center for the study of music in the United States. I mean for you know I, I had the I've been doing this for like 30 years now. Um, it's hard to believe since I'm so young, but, you know. Uh, um, Richard Crawford, maybe is a name that some of you know, was my mentor, um, longtime professor emeritus, still living in town here. And uh, But Michigan took seriously the, the art of our country at a time when most musicology in universities were really only cared about Bach and, Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Haydn, and so, our you know interest in American music really goes back to like the 1920s and 30s um, the earliest like Britain recital Hall which is where a recital will be on Saturday night which I'll invite you to um, is named after Alan P. Britton, who was Dean of the school of Music and he was a hymnologist so he studied American hymns for churches and so long history of studying our culture and I th- for my students I think it's sort of magical because we're I'm asking them to think about music in their own lives. I mean, that, that notion of music as a tool for living, which I actually stole from Rich Crawford, my mentor, um, you know, is really about looking at the, the way music helps us figure out who we are. Um, my other big area of research is on the US um, Star Spangled Banner on the National Anthem, A book called O Say, Can You Hear? Which you should all give to your, you know, children and grandchildren for, <laughs> for Christmas. Um, But it was really a labor of love for me to talk to my students about what does music mean to us as Americans. And if there was any song, you know, that's American, it's either Love Is Here to Stay, Fascinating Rhythm, or The Star Spangled Banner." I mean, those are sort of the the songs that help us figure out who we are as people, I think. Mm -hmm. So Todd called us and and, um, said, would you like to work on our uncle's work? Now, interestingly, if you know anything about uh, Ira and George, I mean, George was the most eligible bachelor in in the United States at the time. Never had any kids, and and neither did Ira. So where does where does Todd come in? Well, Todd comes in from the the unknown Gershwin siblings, who are pictured here. So this is the four the quartet of Gershwin siblings. So and the the other two that you don't know, George is in the middle. He's the tall one, with the and they all have very res, heavily receding hairlines. So you basically can date the photographs of George by where his hair is. Um, so this is relatively late. This this picture is clearly taken in the 30s. Um, Ira's on the far left and the, the woman is their sister Frances, or went by Frankie. And Frankie was actually the first to become famous. She actually appeared in a review with Cole Porter in uh, in Paris in 1928. And, uh, and then the the unknown Gershwin brother is Arthur. Um, so Arthur Gershwin was also a composer. A very bad idea to have be a composer if your brother is named George Gershwin. Um, he did write one musical, which which nobody remembers. Um, but Arthur actually um, had a son, Mark Gershwin. And Mark is Todd's father. So uh, Mark has three sons. Um, they, he currently lives in Los Angeles, which is an important part of the story, which I'll tell you in a bit. But for for his whole youth, um, they actually lived in George's apartment on Riverside Drive in, in New York. So. Long, long legacy, but it's, it's the, the sister and the one, the third brother, who had children. Um, Frances actually had three kids twin girls, and then another, another daughter. Um, she's also sort of famous. She, she ended up marrying Leopold Godowski III. Um, Leopold Godowski II was a chemist who invented uh, the Kodachrome process for Kodak film. So there actually is a whole story around photography that's in the Gershwin family, too. Um, Leopold Godowski III is a famous uh, concert pianist. So, very very musical family. Um, but Arthur is the, the one to which we owe the connection to the University of Michigan. And of course, you know, th- this connection is not random. I mean, one of the, the sort of weird things is like, why would the Gershwin family look to the University of Michigan for, you know, to host the sort of legacy of, of George and Ira? I mean, one reason is certainly the luck of the fact that Todd came here as a student. but the, the relationship to, to New York is actually a historical artifact of you know, anti-Semitism and the limits on Jewish enrollment at a lot of colleges around the United States. So Columbia University in Chicago had, or sorry, New York had a, had a limit of, of how many Jewish people could be enrolled. Um, and they had a special college where those students were, were placed. The University of Michigan welcomed everybody. And so there, part of our historical connection to New York is a historical connection to the Jewish community in New York. And that's, that's in part why Todd saw the University of Michigan as a connection. So, and one of the, the fun things is that Todd's nephew, Noah, so the great, great, great nephew of George Myra, um, graduated from also kinesiology and sports management. Um, a couple of years ago, and now Todd's daughter, Audrey, is applying to the University of Michigan. So I'm getting lots of calls from the Gershwin family wondering if I can put in a good word for, for the daughter. And I'm like, you know, that's not how we do things here. I really don't have any influence, but I'll, I'll do what I can, which is nothing. But, it, but I want them to think I'm very supportive, and I am very supportive. But she, I can tell you, Audrey is super excited about coming to Michigan. She wants to be here more than anything. So I, I hope that we have another Gershwin on the U of M alumni roster. So that's very exciting. But George Gershwin was born in, in 1898, um, died tragically young in 1937 of a brain tumor. So he was only 38 years old. Um, you know, I sort of compare him to Mozart in that regard. I mean, Mozart also died very young, and, uh, but left us a, a beautiful body of work. I actually did an interview this morning um, with a, a magazine in London uh, called The New European. And they were asking me, well, what would what would American culture be like if George Gershwin had lived? And I was like, well, one thing we would have is George's first symphony, because there's, there are these letters in the Library of Congress where he's talking about his plans for his first symphony, and they, it's just like a dagger to my heart every time I read that letter that we don't have that. But on the other hand, I'm super grateful that we have Porgy and Bess, that we have Of the I Sing, that we have you know Girl Crazy and OK and this incredible Broadway legacy, that we have Rhapsody in Blue and An American in Paris, and, and you know, his musical imagination and his sort of, he was a, you know, a workaholic. Um, he, would, he was not an early riser. Um, he would get up at like 10, 11 a.m. and uh, have, have lunch. He would exercise, uh, avid, uh, sportsman and tennis player. He was also a painter. This is one of his self-portraits actually on the, on the screen there. And uh, I, I find it sort of interesting because it's sort of got a red, white, and blue American theme going. Um, and it's also, as you can see, sort of, it's got sort of abstract shapes in the back. So one of the th- things we forget about Gershwin is, is that he was a modernist. I mean, he was very interested in telling the story of his time and place, of being at- attuned to the most sort of advanced developments in musical modernism in Europe. Um, but he also was you know, one of the great melodists of music history, able to write in these enduring tunes that were incredibly accessible at the same time they were sophisticated. So. Really, an interesting, an interesting figure in the history of music, and another one of those figures that was sort of ignored because he was too successful. He was commercially popular, and so academics thought, well, that couldn't be worth anything because you know, it's not real art unless everybody struggles to understand it. Um, but Gershwin, I think, had a, a mindset that he just wanted to write great music, and great music to him meant really sophisticated music with great harmonies and 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 very um, you know, learned. It's a mistake to think of him as a self-taught musician or a a savant. I mean he was a genius for sure, but he actually studied music seriously throughout his life. He studied Chopin, studied Romanov, he was taking composition lessons all the way up through the year he died. And he was constantly eager to know more about um, music. So so certainly a very educated person even though he dropped out of college at age 15, which is not or dropped out of high school. It was. It's not part of the story I tell my students. Like that, that, you should all be like George Gershwin and drop out now. No, we we don't talk about that. We talk about his passion for learning. Um, but you know, because he died so young, he didn't have the chance to curate his legacy, and that's really you know sort of where things come in for the University of Michigan. Um, an amazing you know talent, a, a pianist, um, lived, grew up, born in Brooklyn, but really lived in Manhattan. And I think this is important because he was part of a you know, a cultural m- melting pot from the whole world. Like, you know, Manhattan, New York was initially a Dutch colony. It was a mercantile economy, and it it really is about international trade. And it was about shipping and bringing new ideas and new goods there. And you know, New York today still has that legacy of being sort of the most cosmopolitan place. Um, it's not Ann Arbor, it turns out. I mean, it might be, <laughs> although we're close, um, because everybody think everybody comes here from New York because of the University of Musical Society and the and the museum. But you know, I think he absorbed that sound work of, of the, the Yiddish theater and and the, the churches and you know, black music and classical music and the popular music industry and songwriting and Tin Pan Alley, like all of that is just part of his sound world. And I don't think he thought of them as separate boxes, like little silos to be mixed like spices in a dish. It was really all part of one thing for George Gershwin. And that's, I think, part of why His music is so magical because all of those things mix together in a way that doesn't sound constructed or like a gimmick or a game. It's just, it's just George Gershwin. And and for, for that reason, for me, he's really, the the sort of, the key to American creativity in many ways. Um, I think I have a little bit of a recording here, Roger. If you want to click that, I don't know if you can see that that little icon that's in the very middle of the screen. This is George doing a a piece called Rialto Ripples, which, and this is a recording of him playing piano, and his piano stylings are important. But you can hear a lot of ragtime in this, Um, and and that's really, George's sound world is really stride piano. it's less swing jazz, which is how we think of him now, because his music was reinterpreted by musicians after he died in the 1940s. And you know Tommy Dorsey was playing his stuff, and it became part of the swing era. But his world is really ragtime. It's, it's really much more of a kind of march straight up tempo with um, syncopation, which is that sort of jazzy, offbeat accents. Um, let's see. Whoops, am I going backwards, I think. OK. The other person we can't forget when we talk about George is his brother Ira. Um, They were very much a team. They started really writing together in 1924 um, for a show called Primrose which we are currently editing and uh, you know also wrote this piece um, Fascinating Rhythm which I'll talk about in a second. In 1932 um, the Gershwins were awarded the Pulitzer Prize but only to Ira, not to George because there was no Pulitzer Prize for music in 1932, only a Pulitzer Prize for literature. So the, the Gershwin was actually given to the, the three author, authors of, um, of The I Sing, which is, you know, in the Gershwin family is, is iconic in the same way that Porgy and Bess is iconic. I mean, that's the, sort of the famous, famous show. The, uh, the Gershwin Prize in Songwriting, which is awarded annually by the Library of Congress, has a, the lyrics from, of The I Sing in the medal. And uh, we get, because we're working with them, we get invited to that prize every year, which is sort of fun to hang out with some pretty cool people like Willie Nelson and, you know. Um, So, uh, but it's sort of an amazing story. And Of the I Sing is the other big Broadway show we're working on right now. Um, In part for the, in anticipation of the 250th birthday of the country, we're trying to edit the shows, which I'd sort of been scared to take on until now because they're big and iconic um, and complicated. we started out really with, uh, with the concert music. Um, I did the edition of An American in Paris, which we'll talk about. Um, but I wanted to, to talk a little bit about their songwriting, and, and that's what we'll hear on, um, on Sunday. So Michael Feinstein and Yaniv Thibodeau, two really famous pianists, are gonna be doing a concert at Hill Auditorium. I think it's a Hill Auditorium, is it? Yeah, yeah. okay, four o'clock on Sunday. They're going to do duo piano, so it's a big weekend of piano because it's also going to be duo piano the night before at the School of Music, um, seven thirty at the recital hall. That's a free concert, and you, as long as you get there early, I think you'll get a really good seat. Um, but George was wasn't you know really seen as a, a piano master, and he brought a kind of life and excitement to the piano, and to accompanying song that that really nobody had heard before. But he was writing music for you know, the biggest stars of the day. This particular song, Fascinating Rhythm, which I'm sure you know, uh, is from the second musical that George and I were did together, Lady Be Good, also premiered in the London's West End. And uh, Fred and Estelle Astaire were brother and sister. They were a dance team. Adele was way more famous at this time. Everybody thought that she was going to be the famous one. And uh, Fred you know, ended up eclipsing her in, in popularity in, in the movies. But um, they wrote the song Fascinating Rhythm for the Astaire. So what I have for you is really interesting is a basically a rehearsal recording with George playing the piano, and Fred and Adele singing Fascinating Rhythm. So and I'm going to just switch to this so we can see a little bit of the, the lyric for the chorus. You'll hear the verse initially, and then they'll get into the chorus. So um, Roger, we'll, we'll listen to this until basically we get through those words. But I want you to just think about the energy of this song What is it about this song that makes it so special? off but I think in interest of time let's let's turn it off but you can hear here George's like really distinctive piano stylings and one of the problems is if you get the sheet music to end of his songs it's really not what George had in mind right the the commercial sheet music is sort of a, a simplified version that's just the basic chords when George played this, the music himself he added like that big piano solo at the end um, one of the fun stories that um uh, that um, Mike Strunsky, who is the, the head of the IRA estate, lives in San Francisco, tells me all the time is, is about IRA later in life. And uh, IRA would constantly be asked, you know, when you were working with George, which came first, the words or the music? And IRA would, would look pensively and then sort of say, the contract. <laughs>
1: um,
0: but typically, they wrote side by side um, and sort of wrote music and words at the same time. This particular tune we do know that the music was written first, so it's it's really a George improvisation. And what Ira would do in the instances where like lyrics didn't immediately come to mind, um, he would sort of meditate on the on the words. And so he would make up sort of dummy lyrics to try to help him remember the melody, and then he would update the lyrics as his imagination kicked in. So this particular one, you know, he had this melody, da da and he was like what am I gonna come up with for this? I mean, this is the weirdest thing ever. You know, it's not this big, soaring, you know, someone to watch over me kind of melody. So he, the dummy lyric he made is fascinating rhythm to try to remember this fascinating, confusing rhythm, and so the dummy lyric actually became the the permanent lyric for this particular tune. But what's interesting about this, and what I what I represent, is we think of George and Ira Gershwin now as as like classics, like iconic, right? I mean, they're they're the center of the Great American Songbook. This is what American music is. For, for George and Ira, this is an experiment. This is constant, this is new, modern music. They are trying to push, push the envelope of what song is, to take the songs of Irving Berlin and you know, Cole Porter and just carry that forward into a new tradition. So, And I think this is a problem with a lot of, like we think of Mozart in the same way. We think of him as, as sort of conservative, of defining the middle of the, the tradition, when actually they were sort of radical in their time. It's certainly two of George. So one of the things that's interesting about this, if you, you look at it you know, sort of as a poem, you see the repetition of the title phrase. You see a rhyme scheme. You know, but one of the things about Ira is that he always had a lot of unusual multi-syllabic, sometimes multi-word rhymes. So we have a quiver and a fliver, um, instead, of, instead of just the, the sort of traditional end rhymes, um, or a hopping and or stopping. Um, you know so that's that's sort of very characteristic of the modernism and the sort of new thinking that I was, was bringing the other thing you know if, if you had a high school English teacher like I did one of the things you had to do is scansion of all the poems right with, yeah. you'd do the rhyme scheme and the number of syllables and your iamb, <laughs> iambic pentameter for Shakespeare sonnets and all that well you cannot do iambic pentameter with Ira Gershwin um, because he had he would mix up the lengths of the lines, so you've you've got sort of basic sixes here, but then you've got a few fives thrown in for fun, a nine and an eight and a three, and and it's that asymmetry that I think is reflective of this modernism, which is sort of invisible because we're so comfortable with this music. It's so it's so like iconic to us. We don't hear this as sort of a modern experiment, but. The thing about both George and Ira, i mean, the way that George is listening to the world around him, he's listening to the Yiddish theater, he's listening to African-American music and bringing that into his music, Ira's doing the same thing as an observer of popular culture and, and slang, like flivver, anybody, anybody, anybody have a flivver when you were growing up? <laughs> you know, another word for flivver would be jalopy, right, it's, like a, it's a car, it's like an old broken down car. You guys are way too young to remember those days. I can tell. That's good. I was speaking a couple days ago to uh, to a group of the Birmingham Men's Club. There was I was talking about the Star Spangled Banner, and apparently a lot of them had been there in 1812 when the when the uh, the Star Spangled Banner was written. So I don't know. It was an interesting group of guys. Um, but Gershwin's fame. I mean, here he's he's on the cover of Time magazine in 1925, and it's. And it's partially based on the success of Rhapsody in Blue, but really based on his success on Broadway as a Broadway composer, which is what he was most known for during his lifetime. He had aspirations to, well, at least people around him had aspirations that he would be able to elevate American music into the pantheon of Bach and Beethoven and, and you know, Brahms. I, again, I, I don't really think this was so much George's thinking. I think he was just trying to write great music. And for him, great music meant that it was sophisticated and, and emotionally powerful, rhythmically vibrant, you know, sort of in conversation with the most advanced musical aesthetics of the time, but it also was music that people could love, music that they could understand um, and engage with. Um, but, you know, one of the things that made him quite famous was working with soprano Eva Gattier, who's a Canadian soprano, and they did a recital together in 1923 which was you know, called a, a recital of ancient and modern music. And George came on and did the accompaniment, and just everybody went crazy. Um, one person in the audience was Paul Whiteman, and he will play an important role in the history of Rhapsody and Blue, which is, for me, the most iconic melody. When I, was, when I was a high school student growing up here, and I played in the, the Michigan Youth Symphony, I played bassoon and saxophone. So we took uh, Rhapsody and Blue on, uh, on tour with Louis Nagel. I don't know if you know that name, a pianist on on faculty, does a lot of concerts in the community. And he was the soloist, but I played both saxophone and bassoon on that concert. It was, it was fun. But Whiteman wanted to show that jazz was a real art music, you know, that it was just as good as any other kind of music. And so he did a concert, which he called an experiment in modern music and he invited, you know, like all the most famous soloists and, and, and music critics to attend this concert to hear and passed judgment about whether jazz was art. And he asked George Gershwin to write, you know, who had already had famous songs. Swanee was his big, fame, really his biggest hit of his career from 1919 19, 20. And, and he asked him to write a jazz piano concerto to merge jazz with the classical tradition. And the result was Rhapsody in Blue. Um, Rhapsody in Blue is remarkable for lots of, of reasons. I mean, he, he effectively wrote the piece in about 10 days because he was opening Sweet Little Devil one of his shows in um, Boston at the time. So he was going back and forth on the train. So some of the, the train motives, you know, the train sounds that are in Rhapsody in Blue might reflect his time on the train right, thinking about the piece. Um, but he had very little time. And so one of the things he did is he wrote out the sketches. And then the the house arranger for the Whiteman Band. The Whiteman Band was a weird, it was really a jazz orchestra. So it had French horns and, and violins as well as uh, I think I have a picture of it. Well, I don't have a picture of it right there. Um, But only, you know, it was a weird band. For instance, the guy who played uh, string bass also played tuba in the band. (laughs) So you couldn't have the tuba and the string bass playing at the same time because he could only hold one while he was playing. So you had to know this about the band. It wasn't that you just, like, abstractly put together the orchestration. uh, Russ Gorman, who was the, the principal wind player, played, like, 19 different instruments. So... The oboe part, the, the sopranino saxophone part, clarinet part were all written for one guy, and again, you know, you can only play one instrument at a time. So you really had to know the people, not just the instruments. And so George turned over the orchestration duties to Ferdi Graffé. and you know, in some ways, he probably regretted that decision because for a long time, and people who were jealous of Gershwin's success, I think, um, thought, you know, well, he couldn't really orchestrate; he he needed help to do his work. So. Um, you know that was a reputation that George had to live down really for the rest of his life um, in part I think because he was so successful that classical composers who didn't have the kind of success he did in in their own genre I think you know resented that um, but I really see George and Ira as kind of prophets of American culture as people who who lead the way in imagination because they they didn't see you know American ideas as as put in little silos or little boxes you know it wasn't about white music or black music or the concert hall and the jazz club or Yiddish music and Christian music it was just all sort of part of the same thing and something like you couldn't have Porgy and Bess if you couldn't have all of those ideas mixed together at the same time and I don't think it was so much that they were trying to do anything political I think they were just trying to do something magical do something artistic that spoke to people and that resonated with their time and place. And these these were the sounds, these were the ideas that characterized the Manhattan that they grew up in, you know, which had people was this melting pot, right? The Statue of Liberty calling people from all over the world, you know, to their hometown. And that's that's the musical milieu in which their whole vision of what art could be was was shaped. And so, you know, for our students, I th- think this is an incredible opportunity. And, and you know the reason, basically, Michigan's involved in this critical edition. A critical edition is a long-standing scholarly practice, where you know we bring, like, the best of research of looking at recordings, of looking at, um, you know, handwritten manuscripts, letters, commentary from the composers, and try to create a, basically a book that has music notation in it that tells you exactly what George and I were trying to do. And you know one of the challenges. That faces George's legacy is that, I mean, one on one hand, it was so commercially successful that those in the family, like, you know, don't fix what ain't broke. You know, I mean, if it's working, like, we're not gonna have a bunch of editors come in. Um, it was also, I think, one of the magic of uh, Gershwin's melodies is they're so iconic. They also like, they're like chameleon-like. They move through our culture in all sorts of different ways. So. You know if you get on an airplane from United Airlines you're not you're likely to hear the love theme from Rhapsody in Blue you know da 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 da. because it was their theme song for so many years and it it got used and and you know there was every ensemble in the world would play an arrangement of that piece so on one hand Gershwin's music was so powerful so elastic that it could succeed in all of these different genres and arrangements on the other hand the original version that George wrote sort of gets lost in the shuffle like you can't, nobody even remembers what that is. Um, so one of the things we're doing is, we've actually published our very first Critical Edition. It's, they've been available and recorded for ensembles for a long time, but now you can actually buy our score of the original version of Rhapsody in Blue for the jazz band orchestration with the Whiteman Band. Um, and so that's, that's actually being published by the Gershwins through Schott International in, in Germany. So this is very much an international project. We work with scholars all around the world who are interested in in George and Ira Gershwin. We're interested, I think, for our students, you know, that the learning, they're involved in every step of the process, you know, so the the University Symphony Orchestra, our jazz band, our jazz students, you know, played the solo that we test these and test drive all these additions to find the mistakes that we make because it turns out that musical scores have like literally hundreds of thousands of little dots and dashes and lines and, and things on them and... It's almost impossible to get it all right. And the, the big frustration for me is, in computer engraving these days, you you accidentally select something on the page, you lean on the keyboard and you move it like up and down the scale. So there are things that we get right that we have to cue back and fix. So it's very big responsibility, to, I think, to be publishing this legacy and a huge honor for us to be working on, to have the trust of the family. They really see not only in alignment with the history of Michigan, but with, with the, the sort of depth and breadth of excellence in our school you know the fact that we have a jazz program and an opera program and a musical theater program you know that we have to train conductors that we train composers that you know all of this stuff comes together to to really involve every aspect of our school so the the Michigan Marching Band does a Gershwin show every couple years you know and as well as the the symphony orchestra which tested a lot of our performances you know because George died so young he didn't have the chance to curate his legacy himself he couldn't take responsibility for publishing the final authoritative versions of all this. And and in fact, many well-meaning editors after he died you know, went in and, and sort of corrected it because they didn't think of George being a, a learned musician. He didn't have a degree in music. He didn't do things the way other composers did things. So on one hand, that could be a problem. For instance, he wrote saxophone parts for the symphony orchestra. Like Symphony orchestras don't have saxophone players, <laughs> right? So if you're going to play the piece, you need to hire saxophone players. And for George's you know, mind, it was like those three saxophone players in the Whiteman band were his vision of what a saxophone player was. So those three guys had like nine different saxophones, and they could pick up a soprano, or a tenor, or an alto, or a berry. Didn't matter. You paid them the same amount of money. With the modern orchestra, they each get a doubling fee every time you add an instrument. So. His original parts for American Paris have three guys playing eight different saxophones um, which is fabulous if you hear it in its original version but you know editors in the 1940s were like oh you know George was sort of silly he didn't understand how the orchestra works you know we'll make these saxophone parts optional we'll simplify it so they they all play one instrument the whole time we'll just have a alto tenor and baritone they won't be switching around well it, it's a joyful noise when you have three soprano saxophones wailing away on the Charleston theme in American Paris and we we restored that original vision to the piece, um, so it's been recorded and performed by Detroit Symphony and others. So it, you know, I just it's an amazing honor for me, and I, I think I will stop there and take a couple questions because I told them I could go for about fifteen hours, and they told me that was too long. Um, so so, uh, but yeah, let's let's open up the floor for any thoughts or questions. Yeah, we'll, we'll, okay. no, no. I love it when I'm such a good teacher that no one has any questions. Oh, I think think we're going back there, and we have on up here.
2: I can talk loud enough. Okay, I so will
0: repeat it okay. for the audience at home. Um,
2: what What were their parents like? The fact that they had four in, incredibly intelligent, artistic children. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about the parents? A
0: little bit. So the the parents are Morris Morris and Rose. Um, they both were immigrants who were coming from. Russia and the Ukraine to uh, escape, you know, anti-Jewish violence in in the late 19th century. You know, if you've seen like um, uh, now I'm forgetting the musical with tradition, what's what's that one called?
3: Fiddle around the
0: roof. Yeah, Fiddler on the Roof. So that's basically the story of, of their, their childhood. Um, Morris was, was something of a serial entrepreneur, so he always had a business going. It was like a tailor shop or a grocery store, and and they they never very successful. Like, they, each one lasted about a year. And so I think they, in George's and Ira's childhood, and Arthur and Francis, they moved like, I don't know, 29 times in 28 years or something. They were always going to the, had some other, he had some other venture going on. Um, uh, Rose was really the, I think, the linchpin of the family. You know, kept it all together. And she, it was her idea to get a piano so that Ira, who was sort of the bookish introverted type, could learn how to, to do something that would make him more socially sort of adept. And uh, the story is told that um, the piano came, you know, was delivered to the house and uh, Ira was taking lessons. And, and one day George just walked up and started playing. <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, oh, genius. And so George sort of took over. What George actually did is he was, um, he was fascinated with a player piano in, in a drugstore down the street. And so he would get the player piano to play and then he would follow the keys. Um, so he learned how to play piano from from a player piano, and that's that's why everybody thinks he he was just born knowing the piano. He actually he actually practiced, but he was practicing outside the home, um, and then he started taking lessons from that point on. So he did do, you know, he had a, a piano teacher and uh, studied Chopin, all the things that. How many people studied piano as a kid? I mean, that's basically what George did. He was just way better at it than you and me. Um, and uh, one of the other the good stories I tell about George is that. Part of his fascination with music, he would—he was taking music theory lessons, <clears throat> and when he did his homework, he would actually solve all the music theory uh, settings, like harmonizations. He would do it like multiple times, so he would turn in his music theory homework, you know, like three times over. And that is something that our students today do not typically do. <laughs> um, I was wondering, do you
1: have a personal favorite or a few favorite pieces that? Um, you particularly, well, you love it all,
0: but um, that you enjoy? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I haven't met any Gershwin I don't like. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say when I first got the opportunity to take on this, this role, I was super excited, but also a little scared. I mean, this is such an important legacy and responsibility. But um, for me, the, the most exciting piece that I, that I have edited myself is An American in Paris, the orchestral tone poem. And part of that is as a bassoonist. Um, it's it's not a big bassoon piece really, but it's there's the second half, which is where the, he goes into the like homesick reverie in the jazz section. Actually, there's this very subtle gesture in the bassoon, um, which for me was always a very big artistic moment. Even even though when you're a bassoon player, basically nobody hears you on the, <laughs> orchestra. so you're largely doing it for yourself. But um, i when i took over the role as as um, editor-in-chief of this project i wanted to edit sort of get my fingers into the soil a little bit and so i took on the role of editing that and part of the excitement was um you know i love the piece so and i know the orchestra i played it many times as a musician um and so i thought it was going to be pretty straightforward and simple and and in many ways i thought the whole project was going to be relatively straightforward i mean what is there to discover about gershwin like we all know gershwin it's not that people are don't know in American in Paris, but um, it, it turns out that when you look at things with a fresh set of eyes, I mean, it basically, is, as a critical editor, as a scholar, your standpoint is like, don't assume anything. Everything needs to be questioned. Everything needs to be tested. And so, one of the things I was doing in my office in Burton Tower at that time was listening to a 1929 recording that George Gershwin had made. Um, supervised, he actually played the celesta part in American in Paris, and uh, I was I was listening, and I. I heard that they are kind of taxi horns. that go honk, 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 honk. And they're basically like a representation of the taxis swirling around the Place du Concorde in Paris. And uh, I just like wonder what pitches those are. And I went over to the piano and, and, and poked them out on the piano to see what pitches they were. And then I realized that they didn't match what everyone was playing. So it turns out there is no standard notation for taxi horns in classical music. And <laughs> Beethoven never wrote for taxi horns, which is uh, probably why George was interested in it. But uh, George, when he was in Paris in the summer of 1928, actually went to all the auto shops on the Avenue de la Grande Armée, and he bought every single horn that he could buy. And there's those old-style brass curly-cue horns with the rubber bulbs. And, uh, and then he took him back to his hotel room, and there is an account of some pianists, duo pianists who were visiting, who, uh, who said, yeah, he had like these 20 horns, and he was experimenting with them to pick exactly which ones he wanted. And he actually had us try it out. Like, he, George played this, the piano, uh, played the orchestra work, and the pianists were honking the horns. And he brought those four, four of those horns back to America, and he put them on a board, and, uh, and labeled them A, B, C, and D. And so, and then he had a notation that looks like a snare drum line. So it's just the rhythm, and it says, play A here, play B here, play C here. So it's perfectly clear when George Gershwin is present and hands you the four horns. So after he dies in 1937, the four horns are lost. Arturo Toscanini is recording an American Paris with the New York Philharmonic. They're the, the group that premiered it. They're using the original parts. They get to A, B, C, and D. And what does a musician do? Looks at the piano keyboard and plays the notes A, B, C, and D. Which makes a lot of sense. Um, however, Taxis are rarely organized enough to travel around in, in a minor scales as they move <laughs> through the Plaza Concorde, and it turns out that the actual pitches that George picks were A flat, B flat, high D, and low A. Like, so a much wider range, a super high note, and a really funny, humorous low note, like gong gong gong. And uh, when you do the original pitches, it's way more um, sort of dissonant. It gives a sense of excitement, of humor, of danger. Um, that, that makes a lot more sense for cars in 1928. So cars in 1928 hadn't been around that long. Um, they were sort of exciting and new and, and also a little scary. I mean, so Eva Gautier actually shortly before American in Paris was written, it actually was, in, was a pedestrian walking around Paris and got hit by a taxi cab and was hospitalized. So there was an element of danger to cars too, I mean, not unlike today. But even though they were moving a lot slower than they do today, it was still conceptually very fast. And so that element of fear and danger and excitement is is in the piece, if you use those original pitches, not so successful if they, they make a rising scale. It doesn't seem like so random or cacophonous. So that was one of the discoveries that we had that was covered in the New York Times. Like, you know, who knew that people had been playing these pitches wrong for 70 years? But they're very much... He thought Gershwin thought of them as musical notes. So that particular discovery makes my makes American Paris my favorite.
4: Same
3: question, but change Mark Plague to George Gershwin. Were there songs or types or things that they and you can bring it if you want, that they weren't mm-hmm. favorites or they liked over others and all the work they did.
0: I mean certainly Porgy and Bess is the the great, you know, masterpiece of of both George and Ira and I and George basically did that as a volunteer. I mean, he made a lot of money off of Swanee, off of Rhapsody and Blue, and he basically self-funded um, Porgy and Bess as a passion project. No one, no one commissioned him to write that work. He he wanted to write it himself. He he had a radio show in New York that sort of paid the bills while he wrote um, Porgy and Bess. So I I would say, you know, that was certainly the 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 work in the family that you know, that and that George loved and that the family loved. Um, I would have loved to to hear the second opera that George would have written had he lived longer. Um, and I can say that the family, you know, travels all the way around the world today to hear new productions of Porgy and Bess. And in some ways it inspired the Critical Edition and the U of M project because they were touring around and a conductor named Andrew Litton, who was a family friend, you know, talked to them backstage after the performance and said, you know, why why do you let this, you know these terrible parts be performed all around the world and they were like what are you talking about? Um, So it had been the same pieces of paper from the 1936 production that were continuing to be used all the way up through the 2000s. Um, Our edition is now the only edition available worldwide so if you peer Porgy and Best it's the University of Michigan edition and one of the things that was strange about the previous parts is that George was you know on a press timeline, he wrote the piano vocal score which had all the singing parts and then had a piano reduction of what he imagined for the orchestra. That was went into production as a publication while he was doing the orchestration, taking the piano part and expanding it to the orchestra. While he was doing that, he kept changing his mind about things. So he would add measures here, take measures away. So until our edition came out in 2018, the piano vocal score that the, the, the singers and the chorus used did not have the same number of measures as the orchestral score that the conductor and the musicians was using. So when you get into rehearsal, it's a little confusing to say bar 252 for the orchestra and bar 253 for the, the chorus. And so, you know, I mean, that's opera people are not unused to such things because there's cuts and all sorts of things. Um, so, but but now I'm happy to say that everything lines up and matches. Maybe I'm mistaken,
1: but uh, I seem to recall that there was some issue some years back about whether there were stereotyping in Porgy and Bess, and there's some sensitivity about that mm-hmm. these white guys writing the stuff, and, and, and maybe it was a little too stereotypical
0: the African Americans. Th- that is certainly an, an important issue. Um, you know, it's basically we call cultural appropriation when people who are in a, a sort of a culturally more powerful position take the cultural products of people who are in a socially weaker position and profit off of that um, or become the, become the storytellers for for people who are disadvantaged. Certainly true throughout American history that, that black Americans have not had the cultural power and authority that you know people like Duke Ellington did not make as much money as the white publishers you know who were, were putting out the records and the sheet music. Um, I think with George it's it's sort of complicated I mean with everything it's complicated I, I do sincerely believe personally that, that George you know, had colleagues and was sort of was part of the musical scene in New York among black pianists in particular. So people like James P. Johnson. If you know the jazz tradition, you know that rhythm changes, which are the, the particular chords that follow the tune I Got Rhythm, is a jazz standard. And one of our current graduate students, Tracy Lombre, in American culture actually has done some really interesting work around this showing that James P. Johnson himself was part of the way in which that particular tune got inserted into the sort of jam session traditions within jazz practice. And for James P. Johnson it was a way of honoring his friend George, you know, who was part of, you know, a colleague. And so I, I do think, you know, I said earlier that I didn't think that George and I were, were being political when they mixed things together. I, I do think that George was being political or at least celebratory when he took a black story that featured, by necessity, black musicians and black artists, and put the, used his popularity and his success to put them on stage. So you know, John D- Bubbles, who was the initial sporting life, was a, a famous sort of performer, but was not a mainstream performer. And and George gave him you know a, a platform to sh- to show the world what he could do as an artist. And so I I do think, and Rich Crawford is my mentor. The, emeritus professor at Michigan, you know, sort of the first to share this opinion with me, that he really thinks that, that George loved black American music and wanted to see it respected. And part of the reason for writing Porgy and Bess was to have a vehicle where black music could be celebrated. And if you know the, like the burial scene, the spirituals that are in Porgy and Bess, there's a way in which the you know the, the black music you know actor singers who perform that, and by contract they have to be you know African Americans or black singers. Um, that they make that music their own and bring an authenticity to George, that, that amplifies George's voice, and and makes it their own. So I I do think there is a magic around that. I I can tell you my current students you know they they struggle for instance with the dialect that's in Puerto Um and I think that's particularly hard for modern audiences. Um, for DeBose Hayward, who wrote the the, the novel that with his wife Dorothy, became the play, which then became the opera libretto, you know, his DeBose Hayward's mother was a scholar of Geechee language, Gullah Geechee language, which is the the black dialect that's within the slave enslaved community in the Georgia Sea Islands, and so for, it's not an exact use of that language. It's it's sort of a little bit of a a, a, a translation of it that would work for. English-speaking, you know, mainstream white audiences, but it is, you know, I think intended as a as a, most, a part of authenticity. And George went to Folly Island. He went to Charleston. He's you know, made music with the musicians there as, as a research project, as as part of writing um, *Portuguese Bass. So I I think there's a sincere attempt not just to use but to celebrate and to to understand that music, which is evident in the success of the musical score. So. So for me that's, it's complicated, but I, I do think that um, you know in George's mind and especially if you think about nineteen thirty-five and thirty-six, you know, George was super famous, but there's a lot of anti-Semitism in the world in, in, in that time. So I think there's a kind of empathy maybe between between George and Ira and understanding another group of, of people in America that often is stereotyped that was, you know, um, you know, had disadvantages and finding a way to use culture to celebrate that diversity, and of course, you know, that legacy is much of what the university is embracing today. One of the other exciting projects we have going um, at the university is a a commission by a Nigerian-American composer, Nkiro Okoye, that will premiere on February 10th at Hill Auditorium with, under UMS auspices, it's called When the Cage Bird Sings, it's a celebration of sort of the emancipatory power of black women. and there's also an enormous number of black operas, you know, operas by African-American um, composers and librettists that I think, in some ways, is building on the, the tradition and trajectory that the Porgy best, you know, doors that were opened at the Metropolitan, for instance, if the Fire Shut Up by My Bones*, you know, was recently done, and you know, I think *Champion* is being done by um, uh, Lyric Opera in Chicago, and hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, Detroit Opera will be doing Rhian and Giddens' Omar at some point in the near future, which just won the Pulitzer Prize. So it, I think there are now, fortunately, um, black artists who are getting opportunities to tell their own stories on the opera stage, but James B. Johnson wrote two operas in the 1930s, you know, again, George's friend. His operas were not given the prominence that George's fame allowed Porgy Best to have. So I, I think there's a way in which that opera really opened doors. And I, I see it as an activist work that has a lot of positive legacy. And part of it is really to understand the history of, this, of the show. So if you engage with it as stereotypes, you could see it as perpetuating those. Um, and, and there's certainly that legacy there. But um, there's a way, I think, the depth of understanding we're trying to bring to our students at Michigan and through this project, I think, you know, hopefully highlights some of the really positive powers. But it's, it's a mixed bag at best.
2: Hello? Nope. Oh, okay. Um, I'm just wondering, is there a way to purchase any of your renditions or the project?
0: Uh, a- absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff online. I mean, we, we try to give away for free as much of it as we can. So there are quite a few concerts and lectures that we have curated that are available on YouTube. Um, the, the cast recording of the Metropolitan Opera premiere of our audition with Angel Blue um, is available for purchase. This new score is available um, from Shot Music International, both as a full jazz score of uh, Rhapsody in Blue, but also as a two-piano score, sort of a study score. Um, you know, they're not inexpensive; probably like a hundred over a hundred dollars. And um, but they they are out there, and they, they are in our library because I put it there. Um, but I think increasingly there will be things are available for public so, sale.
2: I'm sorry. Where would I search to find find all of
0: um, you can, so the Gershwin website at the university would have links, or you can go okay. to to SHOT Music. If you just search uh, sort of George and I were Gershwin Critical Edition, Rhapsody in Blue, it should pop up on the website in, in SHOT. If not, just email me, I'll send it to you. We have a question up, up front One here. Question. Oh, more question okay. And I'll be around, I don't have to teach. My students are doing their final projects at two, so I've got a few minutes. <laughs>
4: You've taken this is uh, you've taken some of the questions and expanded them
0: tremendously. Is there a diary that you've created that has that background, answering other people that might want to? In other words, you you've taken 15 years of mm. study and just given it out to us like, oh, here it is. <laughs> but is, is it written down somewhere? That was that's really my. There's there is a lot of publishing on Gershwin. Um, one book i recommend is Howard ba- Pollock, who's a U of M graduate, teaches at the University of Houston, wrote like literally the bible of of Gershwin studies. Um, it's called George Gershwin: A Life, um, or maybe I think it, or Life and Music. It's like 860 some pages, so it's it's my go-to source for anything Gershwin. It's got a beautiful index. Um, it's, First half of it tells us George's story, and the second half of it is really focused on individual compositions. So you can sort of dive in, you do not have to read the whole thing in one day. Um, <laughs> I am also happy to say that a lot of our work is being published, I mean, not only my research, but also the students working for the Gershwin Critical Edition. So we have a range of undergrads to PhD students who work as assistants on the project. And many of them have gone on to become Gershwin scholars in their own right. And we, there is a recent publication called the Cambridge Companion to George Gershwin, and uh, edited by a friend of mine. But it probably has six or seven articles that are directly derived from the UVM project, including one by me about George's business practices and the way he brought sort of Broadway thinking to classical music, um, specifically around an American Paris. So we are con- we definitely see the whole project as having a you know service to the Gershwin legacy, a service to our students, but also a service to the world. To get these ideas out, we're constantly hosting, you know, um, symposia, free things, and so I want to invite you to a couple things. If you, I think there might still be tickets available for Sunday, so you should should go to that if you'd like. The ums.org would be available. Michael Feinstein, who's one of the pianists, was Ira Gershwin's assistant, so he was a little kid growing up in, in Los Angeles, basically met with Ira Gershwin and and sort of became his sidekick for a while. So he knows more Gershwin stories than anybody. Um, I've talked to him on the phone. I've actually never met him, so I'm excited to meet him this weekend. And then um, the night before, one of my colleagues, Logan Skelton, who is a one of our piano faculty members, probably our one of our most successful piano teachers, has also been a real you know fan of the Gershwin project, and has himself has taken on Gershwin as a research project. So he's arranged a bunch of Gershwin songs for piano four hands and for two pianos. And so he will be playing with some of his colleagues for free, 7.30 at the recital hall at the School of Music, Theater and Dances, free parking on the weekends. It's almost worth driving to the School of Music just to get the free parking. <laughs> you don't even have to go to the concert, you can just park there. Um, everybody in this room knows that, that story. The other thing which we haven't even announced yet, so you're the first audience I've told, is that um, on the 100th anniversary to the day of Rhapsody in Blue will be February 12th, um, 2024. So it was premiered on Lincoln's birthday, February 12th, 20, or 1924, at Aeolian Hall in New York. So we, we had it all set up to give a concert on Monday night at the School of Music in the same recital hall. And then Russ Collins, who a bunch of you may know, was like, why would you give the concert for the centennial of Rhapsody in Blue in a room that only holds 250 people, (laughs) when you could come to the Michigan Theater where we have 1,700 seats. And I was like, well, one reason is I would have to carry George Gershwin's piano from the School of Music to the Michigan Theater. And he's like, we can figure that out. So we have, one of the, the really special things is that when Mark George Gershwin, so the father of Todd, moved out of the family apartment in Riverside Drive to Los Angeles to be closer to his grandkids, um, he had this piano in his apartment that had been there since George died. It's George Gershwin's piano. It's like, what are we going to do with this? And so, I said, I have an idea. <laughs> you could donate that to the University of Michigan. And so, he had it appraised, and it was worth somewhere between twenty dollars and two billion dollars. <laughs> and no one really knew. Um, it was completely unplayable. It hadn't been tuned or, you know, taken care of. Um, so it, we we eventually shipped it back to um, Ann Arbor, convinced them to donate it to us. So it's part of the legacy of the Gershwins at um, the University of Michigan. And so it's available in our recital hall as a student instrument to play. like if, if musical theaters want to do a re- students want to do a recording of the Great American Songbook, they can actually be accompanied by George's uh, their pianist on George's piano. So, it's a miraculous piano, it's quite small, but it's, it's, if you're George Gershwin and you call up Steinway, they do not send you their worst piano, they send you the best <laughs> one they have. So it's a pretty amazing instrument. The other little factoid, so anyway, um, we will be taking that instrument the day before February 11th, because that's Sunday night at 6 p.m., we will have a free concert at the Michigan Theater. There are 1,700 seats available, it will look very empty if you don't come so please bring, bring all your friends and all your relatives and show up the other little thing I'll tell you sort of in closing because I know you probably have something to do today I um, but I do have a definitive answer of exactly how much that piano is worth because the, the appraisals couldn't figure it out but we were in this intense negotiation with um, Todd and his, his dad over like donating the piano and he was trying to decide if he's gonna try to sell it and we were like, no, 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 and eventually decided not to sell it. But um, basically Todd was like, I'll give it to you for four tickets to the final four. <laughs> so that was, it was the year that we were in the finals, and so we traded four tickets to the final four for George Gershwin's piano. <laughs> so that is exactly how much it's worth. So Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Professor Clay, this was a great way to the holiday season for us, but thank you. And I really do hope people take advantage of the concerts. This was really interesting. Thank you very much. announcements to make before you all start moving around and getting food and whatnot Um, so again thank you to Professor Clegg Um, I would like to move on to just a short program Um, but before I do that I have to ask Pat to come forward you knew we weren't going to forget this entirely I <laughs> <laughs> and we did almost blow the secret it came pretty close um, but Pat is stepping down from the board the microphone. Oh, Pat is stepping down from the board after 24 plus years <laughs> Hi, I'm going to start crying. No, God, oh, I will. <laughs> um, she has been an inspirational leader to the retiree organization between volunteer roles, energy, I don't even know how many million hours of hard work, um, recruiting her husband to UMRA to help as well. So a, <laughs> a constant volunteer um, and somebody who we're very proud of. Al um, and I were talking about tickets to the Rose Bowl, but we came up with a better idea. <laughs> so the board is presenting this to Pat. So you have to open it. Beautiful wrapping. Yeah. Beautiful wrapping. I hate to we're ruin this paper. It it's okay, just go ahead. Rip it open. And then we'll read it. Okay. Okay, so we are presenting to Pat the Dr. Patricia M. Butler Distinguished Volunteer Award. So this will be the board of UMRA will, in fact, um, make this award, we think annually, to volunteers who are stepping up, not board members, but volunteers who are stepping up um, as part of our membership. So, 24 years of exceptional service to UMRA membership as well as to retirees in general. The award will exemplify Pat's standards, values, energy, selflessly volunteering to help UMRA and all of its members. So, Pat, thank you. (laughs) This is sort of the envelope. The envelope, please. Um, Pat, you get to open this one, because it's the first person to receive the award. Oh, wonderful. Rip and tear. Rip and tear. You're too
2: neat. (laughs) I to do a Christmas right. Okay, there we go. Am I supposed to read this? Yes. Dr. Patricia M. Butler Volunteer Leadership Award. Presented to Carol Williams, this seventh <laughs> for her volunteer leadership, service, and dedication to the Oma Carol program since its inception, inception, inception in 2015. University of Michigan Retirees Association says, Thank you, Carol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did almost throw it. Oh dear! She's
0: too powerful.
2: Yes, something Wendy. I would get that. Yeah. Well, you got to know. I got it. Thank you. It's so <laughs> an honor. <laughs> Thank you, you all. Get
3: some
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. This is this <laughs> is Carol's. That's Carol's. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Okay. Thank you.
1: Awesome. You've got the banner behind you. Yeah. Oh, yes. that's.
2: I do have to say it has been a wonderful 24 years, it really has, and um, in all those 24 years, my husband, come up dime. here Don, there, my husband has been beside me the whole time, supportive, although he has been saying lately, you know, you really need to stop this. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, and thank you all. It has been a, a pleasure to be doing this, and I will still be around. Okay? Thank you. We are counting on it. <laughs> so, let's get the three of you real quick. Thank
3: you, the whole board. And the, the, the three, three of, the of three
4: you, and then,
2: yeah, Carol. Okay, move over from here. Yep. <laughs> oh, okay, are we all right? Are they
1: smiling? Are they, they smiling? <laughs> <yes. Yeah. laughs> Carol, turn, turn, turn your picture around, Carol. Yep.
3: Uh, <laughs> all right. Oh, thank you. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Thank you, everyone. Um, we are, uh, before we start, I really, I wanted this to be on... Part of our um, Michigan media filming for our online audience because they also have benefited a huge amount from Pat's leadership. So, to our online audience, um, thank you for joining no, us. Happy yet. holidays. Not yet. Oh. Um, I'm oh. Yeah, we're Sorry. Oh, okay, okay. So don't turn off your computers for those online. Al, you have a, you're coming up to give a brief summary of the history of Umrah.
4: That's, that's a pretty hard act to follow though. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, uh, I, I did think since we're celebrating our 70th anniversary, Is the microphone, it's on, okay, just a little closer. Uh, Since we're celebrating our 70th anniversary uh, this year and at this holiday uh, gathering, our anniversary gathering, I thought we should maybe uh, go, just look real briefly at uh, some of the interesting parts of our our history over the years. I did write up a longer article that's in uh, the December UMRA News, so if you have some time on your hands, read the longer article, but just a snapshot of some of the things that have happened. uh, we, we pretty much have said that this organization was started in 1953. It was started as the Michigan Annuitants Association, and it was for faculty only. Um, in the early years, they, they had 100 or 200 members. The dues at that time were $1, and it was, and it was voluntary, uh, and you had to pay in cash. I don't think Roger wants us to pay in cash any longer, so we we've, we've, we've moved on from that and we've uh, gradually increased our dues to $15, really not very much over a 70-year time period. Uh, We were very fortunate that uh, Professor Everett Soup uh, actually donated $10,000, which helped pay for some of our activities over the years. We set up an endowment account, and we're still using that account today. The university originally did not uh, provide us with any funding, but did provide uh, meeting rooms for the group to get together. Uh, the early gatherings were just a ma- just a way to gather and have interesting conversations. They had an occasional speaker. They did an occasional tour, and I thought it was uh, most interesting that they made a big point: as they always had sherry on a- and hors d'oeuvres at the, <laughs> at, the, at the at the at their meetings. And uh, but I, I don't know if they were as good as the brownies we get today. So, <laughs> um, so I did a little more research and uh, went and uh, looked at the Bentley Library. Uh, and uh, that, uh, for some more information about our organization. And I found uh, an article that said uh, we actually started in 1944 with an organization called the Dunworkin Club, um, which I thought might not be a bad name for us still today. That, uh, mem- members included Presidents Harlan Hatcher and uh, Alexander Ruthven. Uh, and uh, we'll do a little more research on that. Uh, uh, that's something that we just discovered as part of putting this together. And, and uh, if that's really true, then next year we'll be celebrating our 80th anniversary. So, uh, and, and I, thought, I thought then, I'm glad we're not going to age that quickly. So, uh, so, we could be doing this all over again next year. Uh, in 1996, uh, the, uh, we, were, uh, we changed our name to the University of Michigan Retiree Association. And it became open to all faculty and staff members, and we became a 501c3 uh, corporation. Uh, the membership grew to a thousand by 1997. Uh, we expanded to nine board members, later twelve, and now we have fifteen board members. With all the activities we have, we really need that many. Uh, meetings were originally held in Wolverine Tower in uh, Suite 18, which only held 50 people. So uh, some of you wouldn't have been able to be here today if. Uh, if we stayed there. We moved on to uh, the best Western Hotel, which is the Wyndham Gardens that's across the street. Um, And then we moved to uh, Weber's in 2018. Uh, We uh, expanded our programs and decided we needed a a program committee, which was started in 2014, and attendance at our meetings grew to 100, which today I counted, we have over 110 people here today. Uh, before COVID, we even had up to 150 people at times, so uh, we, have, we have grown a lot. Uh, uh, <coughs> we used to have our, our meetings in auditorium style, and we discovered that having these round tables just generated much more discussion. So another advancement that we had, um, the, the, uh, 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 we were part of the schools that helped originate the, the Big Ten Retiree Association, which meets uh, once a year, and Looks for ways from uh, share share our experiences with other schools. Uh, we've as often happens, Michigan ends up being the leader of the, of the group. And I, uh, as as Catherine and I found out at this last one, they kept turning to us for for, for answers to questions. Uh, so uh, we, we we are a leader in that. Uh, we have actually hosted two of the Big Ten conferences, and we will be hosting the conference again in 2025. Um, we do get good uh, support from the university uh, uh, with some funding and, uh, and uh, but we still uh, it's important for us to maintain our independence and we've done that over the years. We have a direct liaison with the president uh, through our HR director of benefits and uh, so we often communicate uh, with, uh, with, the, with the president of the university. Um, we have done things over the years, we've developed a health day in 2005 as you just heard. The travel program began in 2015. Uh, we, as in 2021, we started our shared interest groups that we talked about earlier. Uh, we survey our members uh, once every five years to get your feedback on things that we should do differently, and the board takes that those very seriously and tries to make changes. with ideas that come up, uh, you know, our meetings now are live streamed and recorded, so you can watch them at any time. The people online can watch us uh, now. So we. We we uh, we have we have close to 2,000 members, and a lot of people live outside the Ann Arbor area. So live streaming these and recording was really important, so that we're we're helping all retirees, not, not just the ones that can gather here in person. Um, we now have, that, as you well know, two speakers usually a learn and grow session, and then a 2 p.m. seminar. Uh, we get great support from IT when we we just there was just a survey done of the Big Ten schools and the support we get from IT is much greater than what a lot of other schools get. Um, we even have UMRA swag, so if, I don't know if we have any here today for sale, but uh, you can buy T-shirts and hats and that type of thing. Uh, um, uh, so, so this is just uh, just a really brief history of our organization. Uh, uh, we're gonna do some more research, hoping now that uh, the Bentley Library is open and, uh, and may have some additional things to add uh, in the future, but I think you'll all agree uh, that uh, we've really come a long way since uh, since 1953, and we have a lot really to celebrate today. And then, and I did add add one more note that wasn't mentioned earlier is that uh, we do have a table over here that we draw uh, we make cards for people uh, that uh, with meals that uh, meals on wheels so that when the the meals are delivered, they can get a, a greeting card, and uh, and we and those are also used at some of the senior living centers in in the area. So. During our holiday break, if you have a chance, uh, come over to the table here and, uh, and and make a card for some people to help uh, help them celebrate the holidays. So, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Al, very much. Um, Carol, an honorarium actually went with that award, and I forgot to give it to you. <laughs> You're very welcome it was a lot of fun to put that together quite honestly (laughs) so we will um, transition now into our holiday um, gathering our holiday social you have materials on the table about all of the different holidays and I would like to have the committee that worked on the holiday social please stand. You did a huge amount of work. Thank you very much. Um, So this will actually conclude our um, online time. So for those of you watching at home, um, have a great season great holiday, New Year's, and Go Blue! Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this latest episode by the University of Michigan Retirees Association. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to learn more about us, visit us on the web at umra.hr.umich.edu and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you again. See you next time, and always, Go Blue!